one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussein. The Sahel region of Africa has been racked by instability in recent years, including extremist violence, climate change impacts, and a series of military coups that have deposed democratic governments in six countries. The latest coup took place last week in Niger, where U.S.-trained military officers moved to depose an elected leader has sent the country into chaos. We're joined now by Nick Terse. He's an investigative journalist and a contributing writer for The Intercept. Nick has been reporting on the African continent and the U.S. influence in various African nations for many years. He was in Niger on a reporting trip uh, earlier this year and has been reporting on that country for a sustained period of time. Nick Terse, you've been on this program many times, and we thank you once again for being with us here on Intercepted. Thanks so much for having me on. Nick, I want to start with uh, just basically a TikTok of what happened in Niger, who the coup leaders are, and, and kind of the events that led us to this moment. Take, a, take us through the timeline and, and what exactly went down. Yeah, uh, just this past week, there was a, uh, a junta that uh, rose up in Niger, began with the presidential guard, kidnapping the president, basically taking him hostage, holding him for some time, and... While the president was being held hostage, about uh, 10 high-ranking Nigerian officers uh, appeared on uh, state television to tell the country that they had deposed the president, that the regime had so bungled the counterterrorist response over the last several years that they were taking charge. And, you know, it's still shaking out as to, you know, who the the real power players in the Sunta are, but... Uh, as I reported for The Intercept uh, this week, one of them is uh, Brigadier General Musa Salu Barmu, who is the chief of the Special Operations Forces in Niger, and he's been a darling of the U.S. government for many years. He was trained in the United States at Fort Benning, since renamed, but uh, this, is, this has been a, a school for foreign military officers for many years, and also in Washington at the, uh, the National Defense University, at least those two, uh, likely more. But... Um, there are many pictures on U.S. military websites of him embracing U.S. military officers, uh, being involved in uh, U.S. military activities. And just uh, last month in, uh, in June, he met with a three-star commander of U.S. Army Special Operations Forces in Niger at a large uh, U.S. military base there. So he's, he's really wired into the U.S. security matrix. 
One one follow up to that, you're you're mentioning the U.S. ties of one of the coup plotters, but isn't it also true that the the current government also has curried a lot of favor with the United States? The U.S. has has viewed it as um, not necessarily a full blown client state, but but close to it. So what is what's going on there? I mean, because also the the Biden administration, even before the coup was officially announced, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken. Uh, came out basically warning uh, that no one should attempt to seize power in Niger. So w- what's happening here, given what you just described about the U.S. training background of at least one of the coup plotters? Yeah, I mean, the, the United States you know, has, has viewed Niger as a, a true counterterrorism bulwark in the region for many years. And Niger has become uh, increasingly more important to the United States in the region over the last several years. But there's been a, a long-standing relationship, and U.S. taxpayers have sent uh, more than half a billion dollars in security assistance to Niger since just 2012. And the United States has really been pumping assistance, uh, military aid, weapons, uh, sending trainers, advisors into Niger since uh, about 2002, 2003, right at the beginning of the war on terror. So we have a very strong uh, security relationship there. And Anthony Blinken, as you mentioned, uh, he came out uh, forcefully about this coup. He had been in Niger earlier this year uh, talking about just how important uh, that country is to the U.S. Uh, security apparatus uh, within the West African Sahel and across the continent as a whole. Can you talk a bit about the conflict in Niger, which the U.S. is participating in as supporting the Niger government? Obviously, this conflict's been going on for some years, but I think it's very poorly understood by people outside the region, especially in the U.S. But the U.S. has been very intimately involved, as you said, for quite a long time. Tell us briefly, what are the dynamics and the origins of this conflict? Yeah, you know, as as I mentioned, the United States has has been involved here since about 2002, 2003. But when they first got involved, there was very little terrorist activity in the region. But over uh, the period of the last 20 years, there's been a a tremendous rise. And it's taken place in an area they call uh, Latako Gorma, a tri-border region where Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso all meet. And you know, basically, there are, there are a number of terrorist groups operating there. Some are Al-Qaeda affiliated, some are affiliated with the Islamic State, some are free agents. But they have a very similar playbook. Uh, these are jihadists who generally attack on motorcycle. They will roll into villages. Generally, uh, they'll come before attacking to tell people how they, they want them to, to dress, to act. These are generally, you know, in, in these, these countries, Muslim people, but they want them to, uh, to, to ascribe to a, a more strident version of, of Islam. They want women to wear the veil. They want men to wear short pants. They want, uh, alcohol to be uh, completely verboten. And, you know, if, if you don't comply, if you don't pay zakat, the Islamic tax, they will come back and they will come back shooting. And they've terrorized, uh, villages in, the, in these regions. And generally, the uh, the militaries of these countries have been uh, unable to to protect their people. The United States has uh, poured security aid in, uh, supposedly to uh, you know to to bolster these militaries to make them more effective in protecting their people. But uh, every year over the last ten years, the number of terrorist attacks have gone up, the number of uh, civilian fatalities have gone up, and 
you know, basically, you know, the, the only metric where the United States has been successful is training uh, military officers who are able to overthrow their own governments. They've been unable to uh, combat the jihadists in any, any kind of effective way. Nick, there, there's a lot of, uh, of pushback um, against France happening on the African continent, especially in countries where French colonialism reared its ugly head for a sustained period of time. And both the United States and France have troops that are on the ground in Niger. Uh, I think by last time I checked, France has uh, roughly one and a half thousand troops there. And there are more than a thousand, I think, eleven hundred U.S. troops, and most of those, as I understand, are stationed at drone bases that are used to carry out strikes, either in Niger or elsewhere. Um, but to talk a little bit about the place that French colonialism holds in not just Niger's current day politics, but also in some of the other coups or rebellions that we've seen in former French colonial nations in Africa. Yeah, there's a great deal of anti-French sentiment in the Western Sahel, in the countries that I talked about, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali. You know, and I and I think it's uh and, and the United States has been really, you know, wired into the the, the French military response there. Aided France in, in many ways with ISR, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, worked alongside French troops. But uh the, the militaries in these countries and the civilian populations have, have really soured on, on the French who they, as you mentioned, they, the colonial relationship there has, has never really gone away. These are still treated by France as, as de facto colonies in many ways. French corporations dominate the, the landscape there and people see them as, as very extractive, taking, you know, mineral wealth, uranium, you know, and, and, People want want these resources back and don't think the French should have their uh, hands on them. And I think the United States has, uh, because they're they're so wired in with the French, has taken on some of that uh, colonial sheen. You know, the uh, population see them as 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 working together. So that hasn't benefited the United States. And I think also just the ineffectiveness of the French counterterrorism effort and the, the U.S. counterterrorism effort over the last 20 years, you know, it's, it's really soured common people in these countries and, and also a lot of military officers who are now looking, you know, elsewhere at Russia, the Wagner group as, as a possible solution because you know, 20 years of, of the United States and France uh, conducting counterterrorism missions sending in advisors, sending in special operations forces, training, advising local troops. It just hasn't worked. Uh, the terrorism has, has just increased year after year, civilian deaths increasing year after year. Nick, you mentioned earlier that this issue of terrorism was less prominent in the region 20 years ago when the war on terror began. But something happened in that time to exacerbate it. Can you explain the dynamics by which it began to increase over the past generation or so? And Second to that, in a lot of places in the world, jihadist groups tend to exploit currently existing ethnic conflict. Is there a dynamic of ethnic conflict in Niger, in this region you're talking about where the epicenter of jihadism is? Yes. Uh, one, when we're talking about the, the increase in terrorism, um, it's been you know, profound. Uh, back in 2002, 2003, when the United States first began putting counterterrorism funds into Niger, the State Department counted, you know, something like, um, you know, a total of nine terrorist attacks uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, a tremendously small 
number. Last year in Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger alone, uh, there were uh, more than 2,700 terrorist attacks. So we're talking about a, a 30,000% increase since the U.S. began its counterterrorism efforts. So it's it's a tremendous increase. And you mentioned the, the ethnic conflict, local dynamics. Yeah, it's, it's very much the case. You know, actors like, uh, like Al-Qaeda and ISIS have been able to, to play on this. There's a, an ethnic group that spans uh, all three countries, sometimes called the Fulani, sometimes called the Pul. And this group has been marginalized, you know, really since colonial times, when the, the French colonized the region. And, you know, this group has been really kept out of, you know, government positions. They've wanted a, a place in the military, have been uh, kept out of that. And they're generally Islamic herders. And, you know, some of the other groups are, are Christian groups that are you know, have, have had a preferred place in the government and in, in business. And just the, uh, the changing dynamics in the country, uh, economics, climate change, all these things have affected these, these pole herders. And, you know, and, and because they are then recruited due to this dissatisfaction with the government by these terrorist groups, the governments in these regions generally assume that uh, that all people are terrorists and treat them as such. So they abuse these communities. Uh, they commit atrocities there. They arrest and disappear men. And this drives the Fulani herders further towards the, the terrorists. So again, it's outside, you know, the, the, the U.S. counterterrorism model has helped to feed this by uh, empowering these militaries more allowing them to target these communities further and just ramped up the terrorism in there. So it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy and, and really a, a endless cycle and spiral of violence. You know, this, this coup uh, happens at a, a really interesting time in not just uh, world affairs, but also in African affairs. It happens as you have this Africa summit taking place in St. Petersburg, Russia, one of the stated purposes of the uh, of the conference was the the continued liberation from colonialism and neocolonialism. This coup happens while you have the uh, Russia's war continuing to rage in Ukraine. You mentioned earlier uh, the Wagner Group and its leader uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Um, Prigozhin, when this coup happened in Niger was actually, um, I think the New York Times described him as hovering on the margins of the conference on Africa in St. Petersburg. But he praised the coup, Prigozhin did, um, and, and actually suggested that he could send his own armed fighters to help. And of course, the, the Wagner Group, and you've reported on this uh, for The Intercept, the Wagner Group is already um, entrenched in several African nations, um, including in Mali, in Mozambique, um, and elsewhere. They also serve as like the presidential guard for, for some uh, military juntas. Talk more about Wagner and Prigozhin in Africa and specifically what they might want out of Niger, because Wagner, like many mercenary companies, um, often tends to uh, operate in the economy of natural resources. And so, you know, looking just in a surface way at Niger's natural resource wealth, it seems quite clear what one of the motivations would be. But talk a bit about the broader 
posture of Wagner in Africa and specifically what they might want out of Niger? We haven't seen that that Wagner is involved in Niger yet, but you know, but you can look to uh, neighboring Mali to get an idea of what the playbook might be. And there, Mali was uh, <laughs> like uh, Burkina Faso before it and uh, Niger, you know, dissatisfied uh, with you know the, the current state of counterterrorism in the country. And in all these countries now, you've had. Uh, military officers rise up. All of them have been U.S. trained military officers. But in Mali, even though we trained that officer, he brought uh, a Wagner Group in. And my understanding is that uh, Wagner is paid $11 million a month for trainers and advisors, but really they're troops on the ground who are conducting military operations. And they also have been given access to mineral resources, specifically uh, artisanal gold mines, which there are a lot of in the uh, in the Western Sahel. So there's there's great uh, mineral wealth to be had there, and this has generally been their playbook. They they want to get their their hooks into these uh, these mines, and you know it's a tremendous profit center for them, and and it's an opportunity uh, for them to to burnish their image and and just expand their their reach. You know, as you as you mentioned, they're in several places on the continent: uh, Central African Republic, Mozambique, Mali. And, you know, it, it looks like Prigozhin is, is interested in, in going into Niger. And depending on how the United States and, uh, and France respond to this, you know, I, I, I think they're worried about, you know, driving, uh, Niger into the, the arms of, of Wagner. You know, and I, and I think it's going to be a very delicate dance by the United States to, uh, you know, to condemn this coup, but, uh, you know, use every, every possible method to, uh, to keep their influence there and to keep, you know, some sort of aid going and, and keep Niger, you know, in the, in the U.S. counterterrorism column instead of Wagner. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You mentioned Wagner has been active in some of the neighboring countries, including Mali, in, in the region. Can you tell us a bit about what we know about the conduct of Wagner in these conflicts? I know the Human Rights Watch and some local journalists have done reports on some of the impacts of Wagner operations. And how may that model, which you described, be applied to Niger if it does come into play? You know, as I've reported recently for The Intercept, and this was off uh, some stellar on the ground research by uh, by Human Rights Watch, you know Wagner has been accompanying 
uh, Malian troops into the field and, and, you know, committing some exceptionally heinous atrocities. They're going into to areas where, you know, terrorist groups are active, but targeting the civilian populations there. So they will come in by helicopter, land in a village, uh, round up the men. They'll go house to house and loot these homes. Uh, generally, it's it's just a, a few uh, Malian troops, but mostly Wagner forces. You know, the, the, the people who are, who are being attacked, they, uh, some of them call them Wagner, some of them call them Russians, uh, some of them call them just white soldiers, you know, but they, they don't speak French and, uh, they're a, a, a new type of force, uh, with new types of tactics. And these men are generally, you know, rounded up and taken away. And, you know, Human Rights Watch shared, uh, some video footage with me of, uh, villagers who, who went out and found, uh, the, the men from their village that had been disappeared and the camera takes you out into a field and they're just, uh, just, it's littered with bodies. Uh, some of them have been shot. Some of them have had their throats slit. In most cases, it looks like the, the men were, were bound before they were killed. So they were, you know, these, these were summary executions by Wagner forces. And, you know, this, this seems to be the, the Wagner playbook. They've done this in Central African Republic as well. But uh, some really brutal methods, and uh, you know, it's, it's a worry that this will again repeat itself in in Niger. But I think it's a it's it's certainly a, a possibility. Were, were there gaps in 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 your assessment, given that you follow this conflict quite closely? Um, were there gaps in what Human Rights Watch reported, and is there? Are there dis- not discrepancies, but are there differences in the way that you can tell that Human Rights Watch approaches the the crimes or alleged uh, human rights violations or extrajudicial killings of of individuals whose where the perpetrator is a Russian backed force versus a U.S. backed force? Uh, if you if you get what I'm saying, um, you know, are, were, were there things that you were there inconsistencies there? or double standards at play. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but just give us an assessment of how you think uh, Human Rights Watch and others sort of approach these kinds of questions when it's the case of a Russian-backed mercenary firm committing the crimes versus U.S. proxies. Yeah, I I think that uh, groups like uh, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, I mean, they they do uh, good work, but um, sometimes the the framing of these, you can see a, a, a difference there, though. You know, I should say in some cases, they, they, they hit it harder when it's Russian backed. Now, generally, the, the U.S. at least keeps a lower profile when it heads out with uh, its local proxies in the region. And we, we generally don't have uh, the same type of, of reporting on that. It often doesn't come to light. Human rights groups uh, you know, generally back off to some degree when they're talking about uh, U.S. proxies and and really, uh, you know, pushing the line that these are U.S. trained forces. And some of it owes to the fact that the United States is able to uh, keep these missions secret. We know in Niger, for example, you know, the United States have run something called the 127 Echo programs there for, for years. And these went on under the radar for a very long time until October of 2017, when there was an ambush uh, by uh, Islamic State forces of, uh, of U.S. troops, killed uh, uh, four U.S. soldiers, two of them Green Berets, uh, wounded uh, a couple more U.S. troops, and killed a, a number of uh, Nigerian proxies who were with them. 
the United States came out and said this was a, a, an advise and assist mission. But really what it was and what, what came to light was that this was uh, the United States operating under Section 127E of the U.S. Code, which allows U.S. forces to employ uh, local Nigerian forces as proxies in the field. They're doing the United States bidding. They're out there uh, to achieve U.S. aims. But rarely do these come to light. So we know there are a lot of atrocities by uh, Nigerian forces. Were they accompanied by the United States uh, during these? You know, it's, it's often impossible to tell. The United States has played such a, a strong role in, in backing uh, Nigerian forces over the years. There's a good chance the United States is involved in, in one way or another. And this is something that, uh, that often doesn't come through in reports by, you know, human rights groups. You know, often I think because they, they don't have the visibility on it, but it's, it's something that at least could be raised more in these reports, uh, in the same manner that they would raise when it comes to Russia or uh, Wagner group. Nick, given your breadth of experience across the region, you've actually connected the dots in a very interesting way about the relationship, incidental or intentional, between U.S. training of militaries and this wave of political instability and coups which have taken place across the Sahel region and beyond in Africa. I think the New York Times actually had a story the other day noting that there have been coups from one coast of the Sahel to the other over the past few years. Pretty remarkable string of... uh, unrest. So I want to ask you, is there a causality between this training relationship in the sense that something benefits the U.S. in having this political instability, or is it more a product of a lack of uh, control or incompetence on the part of U.S. policymakers? Does this, is there, on what side does the U.S. interest lie? And secondarily to that, how are these coups all related to each other, if they are? It seems like this uh, geographical proximity has some sort of salience, but what is that? And how is the region's instability infecting other countries? Yeah, I've, I've noticed, you know, since this, this coup, there's been a tremendous number of, uh, you know, security analysts, uh, Western security analysts on, on Twitter, folks that, uh, that parrot the, the U.S. line who, you know, they, you know, attacked my coverage saying that, that I'm claiming uh, there's causation here, that it's, there's causality that the United States either there's something in U.S. training that that makes these these folks you know, overthrow their their governments, and I don't I don't claim uh, causation in in the way that I think they want to frame the reporting, and and in fact I I think that uh, you know the way they frame it is actually much more damning. You know they say that you know the the United States floods the the region with with money and trains tremendous numbers of officers. You know when when you when you break that down and think about it. The, the amount of money that's been pumped into these these conflicts and how poorly they've gone. I mean, it doesn't speak very well for for U.S. training. It doesn't speak very well for for U.S. advising for the the counterterrorism paradigm that we've sold to these countries. And it's true. I mean, many many officers across West Africa have gotten U.S. training, and not all of them overthrow their governments, but. I think the, the case is that, uh, the United States isn't able to, you know, control how this training is used. It doesn't seem to be effective in, in any type of way for the, its stated purpose, counterterrorism, making these, these countries safer. But, you know, the, the, the officers that it's, it's trained there, it doesn't seem to have had an impact when it comes to 
laws of war, when it comes to democratic principles. And these are things the United States always stresses that they are imparting on these, their trainees across the, the region. So, you know, I, I think at least it should give uh, U.S. policymakers pause and say, you know, this doesn't seem to be effective in, in any of the ways uh, we've wanted to be. Uh, we've used the same paradigm for the last 20 years. Maybe we, we need to rethink at this point. Maybe it's time to uh, think about a, a, another way forward because 20 years of counterterrorism assistance, billions and billions of dollars, uh, U.S. taxpayer dollars uh, pumped into the region has just left us with uh, coups now by 11 U.S. trained officers. You know, again, correlation doesn't equal causation, but uh, the metrics are exceptionally bad. Yeah, and I mean, you also have then the the entire uh, duration of uh, modern U.S. history. Where you 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 mentioned one of the the coup plotters being trained at Fort Benning, and just to remind people, it used to be known as the U.S. Army School of the Americas. You had uh, a string after string after string of. Uh, military officers from Central and Latin America who came to the United States and received training at the what was then called the, the the School of the Americas, who not only committed human rights abuses while they were members of U.S. client state militaries, um, but also then joined paramilitary groups or became assassins. Um, you know the 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 people that assassinated Archbishop Oscar Romero in 1980 in San Salvador, the Archbishop of San Salvador, the group that assassinated him included uh, individuals that were trained at the U.S. Army School of the Americas. Um, that also has been replicated in African nations um, and in Asia and elsewhere, where you have foreign military officers who received extensive and advanced training from the United States, then go on to commit heinous human rights abuses or anti-democratic, uh, you know, regimes come to power with graduates of the uh, of, of U.S. military training, and and I think that you know to to an extent I saw some of the, the the criticism being levied at you, Nick, and and you know I think a lot of it is really baseless because uh, just just to point to the most obvious, I mean, history is on your side in in your analysis here, and it is not just fair game to point out the U.S. role in training people that go on to commit human rights abuses or engage in anti-democratic putches around the world, um, but also to ignore it or to just uh, uh, preemptively say that this isn't a data point we should look at is a, is, a to, is a totally intellectually dishonest exercise. Oftentimes, people who are levying that kind of criticism at people like you are the very people who have to be forced to acknowledge that the U.S. played any role whatsoever in any of the events that have taken place around the world. So I would I would just you know com completely set that aside. But I think it 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 opens a door for a different sort of a nuanced conversation or question to you, and that is to explain post 9/11 why the U.S. started taking increased interest in African nations and particularly Niger. And, and what the past, uh, you know, almost 23 years of so-called counterterrorism strategy have looked like on the African continent. There's, of course, drone strikes, but that's, that's not the entirety of it. But this has been the heart of a lot of your reporting over the past two decades on Africa. And I, I think it would be great if you just walk people through how did we get to this point where the U.S. was using Niger and other African nations in the way it has used them since 9-11? Sure. I mean, just after 9-11, you know, the United States looked out on the world and just made a, a decision that uh, 
you know, basically they would, they would look to places that they considered to be ungoverned spaces, uh, places where they thought that terrorism could take hold. This was just a, a, a theory that you would have to flood these areas with security assistance, uh, get U.S. advisors on the ground, uh, create a, a counterterrorism regime. And they did this in place after place, area after area in Africa. And generally, there were no transnational terror groups in, in sub-Saharan Africa at the time. Even, you know, Al-Shabaab was, was, uh, still a, a glint in the eye of, uh, the Islamic Courts Union at the time. It was, uh, there were none of the threats that they so worried about. You know, 20 years later, you know, uh, U.S., uh, Special Operations Command Africa counts about 50 transnational terrorist and militant groups on the continent. So you've had a tremendous increase over that time. And again, correlation doesn't equal causation. But, you know, I think you can look at the way that the United States has structured its aid, how it's bolstered this counterterrorism mindset that has turned localized conflicts into regional conflicts that has taken uh, what were local problems between ethnic groups and and their governments and internationalized them by creating openings for transnational terror groups to to come in and recruit. And you know, just uh, in almost every context you can look at where the United States has put real counterterrorism dollars into a real significant numbers of U.S. troops, you know, the, the, the conflicts have all worsened uh, for the, the countries involved. And, you know, especially for the, uh, the, the people that are living in these, these conflict areas, things have just gotten exponentially worse over this time. And you mentioned, you know, drone strikes have been one part of this, mostly in Somalia earlier on in, in the war on terror and in Libya, uh, that's subsided at least for the, the moment. But, uh, you know, the United States has had, uh, has put a lot of, uh, boots on the ground, small numbers, but, a lot over time and they cycle these uh, special operations teams in and out of these countries. And Niger has been one, you know, as I mentioned, where they've used this shadowy 127E authority, 127 Echo. And again, this is a small numbers of U.S. commandos on the ground working alongside Nigerian forces who they use as proxies to fight, you know, America's enemies on the continent. They've done this in, in country after country. Uh, they do it in Somalia. They've done it in Cameroon, you know, in Burkina, in Mali at one point and in Niger. And, you know, we had a, a small window into those types of operations due to the debacle in, in 2017. But one thing that, that came out of that, you know, as I said, U.S. Africa Command said this was, this was an advise and assist mission, but this was a, a complete fiction and an investigation by a three-star U.S. general found that Nigerian forces had no input in the planning process or the decision to execute these missions. You know, what the U.S. said were advised assist a company were more like U.S. direct action missions. And direct action is a special ops euphemism for strikes, raids, other offensive missions. And this has been what's going on in the continent in secret for, you know, more than a decade now. Uh, the United States is, is running teams of Navy SEALs, Green Berets in and conducting offensive operations. These are, you know, wars by, by another name, 
that generally the American public doesn't know about. And this has been um, a major portion of counterterrorism strategy on the continent. So given this unrest in this very critical region, obviously the Sahels became a zone of great power competition. China and Russia both have a presence there, and some of China maybe you can enlighten our readers about. But I wanted to ask, given the U.S. very military-focused role in the Sahel over the past generation, could you give us a sense of what may be a more constructive policy? Uh, the U.S. always been trading these military officers and setting them loose, and they've been in many cases, either ineffective or actively agents of destabilization in the region. Is there a better way that the U.S. could support the people of the region and the governments, um, as opposed to the current course they've taken, which has caused so much havoc? Yeah, I mean, generally, you know, I think I think these questions are above my pay grade, and uh, you know, it better served by by smarter people than me. I, I try not to give prescriptions on these things, but um, but I think that. Uh, you know, to, to start, at least, U.S. lawmakers should be taking a really hard look at this this long and, and sordid history of U.S. intervention there and, you know, ask some some really pointed questions of the, the State Department and, uh, and and U.S. Africa Command. You know, generally, in testimony before Congress, uh, you know, Africa gives out some talking points. There's some uh, some predictable questions. No one asks the, the the hard questions or tells them that uh, that they need to come up with with metrics to show that that these uh, that that twenty years of, of counterterrorism efforts have have helped in any way, and I think they'd be hard pressed to do that. So I think uh, you know as a start that needs to be done. You know the, these countries generally, I think the the unrest is driven by poverty and by the governments that we've been supporting that have driven people into the arms of, of terrorists. So I think uh, a, a greater focus on, on humanitarian aid, not only suspending, you know, aid when, when coups happen, but uh, when you have, you know, year after year, decade after decade reports of governments that are uh, abusing their populations, uh, sending militaries out, committing atrocities and, uh, and, and driving terrorism, that the United States needs to uh, to take action in, in these ways, cut off aid before we have uh, 20 years of ineffectiveness and uh, a military uprising. So I think those are some places where at least the, the, there could be a start. Nick, just one follow-up. Uh, Murtaza had mentioned um, China and sort of great power competition. C- can you comment a bit on the difference in approach between the United States and China in the Sahel and how these countries both have tried to sort of assert their influence or economic or diplomatic power? You know, the United States has spent the last uh, 20 plus years with this, this counterterrorism whack-a-mole strategy, and China has really uh, pushed a soft power approach. And, you know, I, I, I think the, the Chinese have been very effective at what they've done. You know, the best example, it always comes to mind, and it's in... Uh, in the Sahel, in Mali, a few years ago, the United States had given Mali a large sum of money through the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is a economic aid that the United States uh, supplies to African countries. And it was for a, uh, a major construction project. And the U.S. cast it about looking for a United States uh, or a U.S. firm that would carry out this work the building project, but there were no U.S. corporations that were interested in going to Africa 
and, and building this, this big public works project. Uh, eventually the company that was hired was a Chinese firm, state connected. So it was U.S. taxpayer dollars. But uh, when Malians looked at this project, they saw Chinese on the ground. They saw Chinese writing on it. They assumed it was a Chinese project. And I mean, this, this is, um, you know, I think it's emblematic of, of how things have gone. The U.S. is, is putting the money out there and China is able to take the credit. I mean, they've, they've eaten our lunch over and over again, uh, in circumstances like this. And this one was, you know, one of the more egregious, but it, it shows that, uh, you know, China knows how to, how to play the, the game on the continent and the United States is, uh, flailing about, I, I would say, in a, in a rather ineffective manner. All right, Nick Terse, thank you so much for joining us once again here on Intercepted. Thanks so much for having me. That was Nick Terse, an investigative journalist and contributing writer for The Intercept. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is the lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show, and this episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you want to support our work, you can go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the size, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted and definitely leave us a rating or a review wherever you find your podcasts. It helps other listeners to find us as well. If you want to give us feedback, you can email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Intercepted is going to be on hiatus for a few weeks, but we will be back in September. Until then, I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussain. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.